If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Exodus chapter 20. Our text today is Exodus chapter 20, verse number 14. You shall not commit adultery. We've been studying the Ten Commandments, and last Sunday we looked at the Sixth Commandment, You shall not murder. It's a commandment that is short, terse, to the point it is simple. In Hebrew, it is two words. As I mentioned last week in Eugene Peterson's The Message, he follows the simplicity, no murder. Okay. Um, someone told me after listening to the sermon, uh, I didn't learn anything new in listening to your sermon. I thought about that for a bit and came up with two responses in, to myself, not to the person. And the first is that the purpose of preaching, at least my preaching, is not necessarily to present new material. It's the title of a book that I have on preaching. It says, Preaching as Reminding, Stirring Memory in an Age of Forgetfulness. It is tempting to me to try to be innovative and to come up with new stuff. But the reality is that is not the purpose of preaching. Rather, it is to remind us to open our eyes to what we know with new understanding, to remind us of what we may have easily forgotten. Peter, in his second epistle, said, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. In the epistle of Jude, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. So, you may not learn anything new today, but I hope you will be reminded. The second response is, I I actually found that I did learn something from the sermon last Sunday, uh, while this other person may not have, and that is, When coming to the Ten Commandments, there are several commandments where I feel like I'm safe. You know, I I haven't ever murdered anybody. So the Sixth Commandment, that's that's one of those I haven't broken. But as we saw, the commandment means much more than simple murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that there are other sins which violate the Sixth Commandment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother Racha is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus speaks of three sins here that violate this sixth commandment. Um, They're equally wrong, worthy of judgment, murder, anger, and insults. So it helps us to see that the sixth commandment involves not only external actions, but also our thoughts, our words and dare I say, our feelings. And so last Sunday I was reminded, or I learned what this commandment involves. In this series, we have seen that the first five commandments have present to us the true nature of reality. This is the way things are. We may live in the fantasy world, but this is the way things are. First of all, there is only one God, the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Secondly, this God is spirit. So we read, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Thirdly, God's name reveals the nature of who he is. So the third commandment is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. 
Then fourthly, God created time as gift. And rest is one of the gifts we find in creation. And so the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then the fifth commandment, our life, our being is a gift from God that comes to us through our parents. Therefore, the commandment is honor your father and your mother. Based on these five commandments, this is the way reality is. We may live in unreality. We may deny the truth of reality. But this is the way things are. How are we then supposed to live? Well, beginning with the sixth commandment, the fifth tells us that life is a gift. The sixth commandment says, don't take that gift away. You shall not murder. And it continues today in the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So let's look at this commandment. Things to consider. First of all, it's connection to the previous commandment. How are murder and adultery, in fact, related? This is the third Sunday now that I have mentioned this, but I think it's important. Remember, the commandments are all connected. That in Genesis 2, when God created man, when he created Adam, he formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So I've said, we tend to think of ourselves as two parts, body and soul. Um, and this is not correct. We are one. There's a unity there. God didn't make a body and then put a soul in it, like a letter in an envelope. He formed out of dust. He breathed his breath into it, and he made the dust to live. Um, I think we view our bodies as balloons, and our souls as the air that God sort of breathes into it. So death is when the air goes out of the balloon. This is wrong. We are animated earth. We contain the very breath of God. Our bodies are holy ground. And when we say our bodies, our whole bodies, every part of our being. Now, if death is not letting the air out of the balloon, then murder is not letting air out of the balloon. It is an assault on holy ground. It is an assault on sacred soil. And violence against a person, it's not just against the balloon, if you wish, or the air that's in it. It is, in fact, an assault on the very being of God, God's breath, in that person. So what does this have to do? We know what how that ties in with the Sixth Commandment, no murder. But how does it tie in with the Seventh Commandment, no adultery? Well, after God created Adam, we read later in Genesis 2, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. In the sixth commandment, we see that we are not to violate the oneness of being human, sacred ground. And here in the seventh commandment, we see that we are not to violate the oneness in marriage, the one flesh. We have sacred ground, our beings, and then we have sacred union. That is what we find in marriage. So one of the church fathers related that the, pro- the prohibition against adultery 
and the prohibition against murder, since the two are one in body. You don't murder someone because there is a unity there that is beyond our comprehension of soul and body, the breath of God, sacred ground. And neither are we to commit adultery, which is a violation of that sacred union that we find in marriage. But but what does this commandment involve? What does it include? Usually when people think of adultery, it is uh, infidelity within marriage, voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. Um, And so some might imagine the seventh commandment is only for those who are married. And that, according to people in our culture today, all other forms of sexual activity are permitted. That is, that they're not against God's law. They don't violate the seventh commandment. And this is simply not the case, as we will see. One writer put it wonderfully, what once was thought to be for the married has now become wonderfully egalitarian. It doesn't matter if you're married or not, the seventh commandment applies to you. The church has held that this commandment does not apply only to marital infidelity, but all forms of unchastity and fornication. Christians are called to be chaste. Chastity is to mark us as God's people, whether we are married or not. Therefore, the seventh commandment applies to all. What we find in the seventh commandment is a prohibition against all sexual activity outside of marriage which would thus include fornication, homosexuality, and other things as well. But the question might come up, why is this even in the Ten Commandments? I think it was Martin Luther who asked that question. He gave a good answer. But the other things we get, you know, murder, okay, and then, you know, that you're not to take God's name in vain, not misuse it, all that. But this why do we have a commandment about sex in the Ten Commandments, the foundation of God's law? Well, I think we need to begin by recognizing that God really honors and glorifies marriage. Um, Go back to creation. Don't you find it significant that the first institution that God created for humanity was in fact marriage? Man and woman are different, they are, they are made one in marriage. They are made for each other and not for lewdness or unchastity, but to be one in sacred union. So then the question again comes up, why all this fuss about the body and what we do with our bodies? And some would argue that the body, you know, that this, particularly this commandment, but the Bible seems to make a big fuss about our bodies. Why all this bother? Well, we went through 1 Corinthians some years ago, and I want to review this a bit, because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is dealing, actually throughout the book, he's dealing with the same problem with the Corinthians. Um, They're like, hey, it's a body, you know, one day we're going to die, food for the worm, so it doesn't matter what we do. Uh, Listen, if you would, as I read this, this is 1 Corinthians 6, beginning of verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be, be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But the Lord, or God, will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? 
Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Uh, if you get a chance to look at this later, in the NIV they have provided quotation marks. Uh, everything is permissible for me is in quotation marks because this is what the Corinthians had written to Paul. And Paul is now writing back to them. The first premise, which is false, is that, hey, I can do anything I want. I have been saved from sin. I'm on my way to heaven. I'm a child of God. Uh, I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, you know, yes, we do have freedom. We do have freedom. But in fact, we should not be enslaved by that freedom. That seems like uh, that doesn't make sense. If you're free, how can you be enslaved? Well, in your freedom, you might say, well, I can do whatever I want, but you find yourself being enslaved by that activity as you do it over and over again. He says, not everything is beneficial. And then he goes on to say, I will not be mastered by anything. Uh, I am free, but I will not be enslaved. So Paul says, I should not do something just because I can. And I should ask, is it beneficial? Is it something that might become my master? And if I ask these questions, then I am acknowledging that, in fact, not everything is permissible. So the second false premise is that food for the body and the body for food. In other words, it's all material stuff. And one day it's going to be dust. Uh, God will destroy them both through death. And so it really doesn't matter what we do. Paul is interesting in how he writes because he doesn't uh, come out and disagree with them directly. Okay, um, But he has to be careful because if he buys into the premise that you know, it's all just material stuff, then what do you do about the sacredness of marriage, the union in marriage, the one flesh experience? What do you do with that? So he doesn't want to go down that road and say, yeah, it doesn't matter because we're just going to be dust one day anyway. Um, what he does say is the body was not created for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God did not create us with sexual immorality in mind. This is what yeah, these creatures mind. They can do whatever it is that they want to do. Uh, no. In fact, he says we are, in fact, one with Christ. We are in Christ. There is a special union there. And then where are we then going to take that union and misuse it uh, in sexual immorality? It would seem that the Corinthians had bought in to the surrounding culture. And that is that the soul is immortal, but the body is mortal. And so what you do with this mortal body is it's really not that important. This was a pagan view. And Paul's answer is, no, I believe in the resurrection. So the body is important. You can't say, no, it's just that part of me you can't see, the soul, that's what's really important. But the body, that don't worry about it. No, because we believe in the resurrection. We are one with Christ. There is union. Sexual immorality also involves union. It's not marriage. It is a union, and it is not what God intended. See, 
By the way, Paul is not saying that sexual union equals marriage. That if you have a man and a woman somewhere and they sleep together, they're married. That's not the case. Because, in fact, we know from the story uh, of Jesus and the uh, Samaritan woman. You know, bring me your husband. She says, I, I, I'm not married. And she goes, That's, he's right. You've been married five times and the man you're with now is not your husband. So she's had five husbands, but now she's living with a man. It's not his, her husband. So living with him doesn't make them married. Okay? There's sexual union, but there is no marriage in that particular case. And Paul is not saying if you're married, that's incompatible with union with Christ. Well, if I'm in union with my wife, a woman with her husband, then how can they be in union with Christ? No, um, that's not the way it is. But the question that comes up, at least in going through 1 Corinthians, why doesn't Paul just simply bring out the seventh commandment and say, you shall not commit adultery? Why didn't he do that? Because they had a false view of the body of what it meant to be a human being. They failed to understand that the body is in fact important and the body is joined to Christ in resurrection. Someone who is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. The fifth thing to consider is that marriage is a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church. Paul deals with this in Ephesians chapter 5. And again, let me read to you an extended portion, beginning verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. You'll notice there that the church is his bride, but also his body, because there's this union with Christ. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, wives, I'm sorry, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does his church. For we are members of his body. There is the union again. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis 2 here. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, Paul tells the husbands that they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This idea of uh, Christ as God and the church as his bride, this is a theme that we find throughout the Old Testament, the idea of God's relationship to his people being the pattern for marriage. In Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. Just... There it is. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. 
And then in Jeremiah 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Israel worshiped false gods, and God calls this adultery. It's also idolatry, but it's adultery because he was as a husband to them. They were as his bride, and yet the bride went off uh, to sleep with other men, with other gods. Okay. The idea is expanded in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. In Mark chapter 2, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while, he is with, fast while he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. On that day they will fast. Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. The book of Revelation views the church as the bride. We find this throughout the New Testament. Here in Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he focuses on the bridegroom's love for his bride. This is what the husbands are to imitate. Paul uses five verbs in this passage that he loves, he loves the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her that he might present her as a holy bride. That's why he gave himself up for us, because he loved us. Christians are to be marked by faithfulness to Christ. You don't have to be married to show this faithfulness. Whether married or single, we are to be faithful to Christ. The sixth thing to consider is, Someone might say, you know, living in the culture in which we do, in which a person is seen as less than a person unless he or she is sexually fulfilled, uh, to deny someone's sexual expression is almost to deny their identity. It, it's, it's to take away their humanity. And so now in our culture, uh, people are identified by sex. That is to say, are you straight? Are you gay? Are you bi? Are you trans? have all these various things, um, which is really an attempt to look at sexuality as independent of anything else, that it has significance apart from anything else. Salt, uh, sex has been exalted as the most interesting, most determinative aspect of what it means to be human. And in our society, a sex-saturated society, sex has become a a commodity. Think of advertising. The fulfillment of any desire now has become the mark of being human. Humans who are consumers are to consume. They are to consume. Unlawful sexual activities, unlawful by the seventh commandment, are seen as the primary motivating force. So think, for example, in advertising, in which something is advertised as giving one sex appeal. What does that mean? Um, 
The ability to create sexual appeal causes one to be desired by others. That is to say that others will want to enter into a sexual relationship with you because of this appeal that you have. Um, What you want to do is to be able to have the ability to create people to lust after you. Consider the use of sexual images to entice customers. Have you ever noticed that in various commercials or advertisements, the images used have nothing to do with the product? But they're used to sell that product. The expression sex sells uh, should be lust sells, or perhaps better, forbidden sex sells. We'll see in a few minutes. Um, this is what Jesus forbids. It's one of the pillars of our society, is something that Jesus said we are not to participate in. The seventh thing to consider is what about marriage? I would suggest to you, it's not original with me, and all may not agree with me, that love is to be the fruit of marriage, it is to be the result of a faithful commitment to one another rather than the cause. We, we tend to get you know, the cart in front of the horse. We, you need to be in love, and then you can get married. Uh, well, I, I think attraction obviously is helpful, a common, common interest. But when one commits to another in marriage, the fruit of that commitment is, in fact, love. It may have slipped by you, or some of us, in the marriage ceremony, Early on in the ceremony, at least the one that I use, uh, before the vows, um, the man and the woman are asked, first the man and then the woman, will you have this woman to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her and honor her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And you'll notice that the question is not, do you love her? The question is, will you love her? Because love is, there certainly is a feeling aspect to it, but it is in fact a commitment, a promise, a gift, one, a promise that one makes to God and to the other person in gratitude for the gifts that God has given us. God has given us life. He's given us so many things, and now I commit to this person that we will be one in Christ. However, in our culture, love has been redefined to mean just about anything, and thus to permit all sorts of violations of this commandment. I'm showing my age here, um, but have you noticed that People don't speak about love so much anymore. This is like a 60s thing, and all you need is love. Um, And now with all the various apps, you can engage in sexual activity, and uh, people don't even refer to it as making love anymore. It's just sex. Love is something that is to be the fruit of a union between a man and a woman. Now let's come to what Jesus had to say about this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew 5, verse 27 and verse 28. 
You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. One difficulty that faces us in studying such a verse as this is that we come to believe that what Jesus is asking for is, is impossible. In fact, some people would say the same is true of the seventh commandment, forbidding adultery, that is contrary to human needs. One might even sort of dress it up by saying these are God-given needs that God has put into us as human beings. People, even scientists, tell us that human beings were not meant to be monogamous. So you bring out the seventh commandment, like, no, 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 that's, that's impossible. That's not the way we were made to be. One commentator in writing on the passage in Matthew says, if this is to be taken as a demand of Jesus, then it must be said he is demanding the impossible. For it is the universal experience that the sexual impulses are uncontrollable. We would respond, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is the universal experience of God's people that sexual urges are controllable. There are, in fact, faithful marriages. There are unmarried people who are, by God's grace, able to control their urges. The fatalism of the social sciences is subject to the universal lordship of Christ. And where the social sciences were say this is impossible, if Christ is Lord, by his grace, it is possible. Two things before we look at these verses. First of all, there isn't the slightest uh, indication at all or suggestion that Jesus is opposed to sexual relations in marriage. He's not saying sex is bad. Okay. Um, Marriage was instituted by God, as we've seen. It is a sacred union, and Jesus is not going contrary to that. Okay? Secondly, Jesus is dealing with all forms of sexual immorality. To argue that Jesus is only speaking to men, or that he's only speaking about adultery, unlawful, illicit sexual relations between people who are not married, uh, but he's not saying fornication or homosexuality or anything else is really to miss what's going on here. It is to be guilty of what this, the same thing that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were guilty of. They had put the seventh commandment in a very, very narrow box, only for married people. Okay, and everybody else can pretty much do whatever you want. which may allow some people to have a sense sense of self-righteousness in the midst of sexual sin. Sort of ironic. By the way, we're only in the seventh commandment, and if we were wondering if, if God wasn't being a little too strict, when we get to the tenth commandment, we will read, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And so that's sort of ties in with what Jesus is saying about lusting after somebody else. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, the ESV says anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. What is lust? I think it's one of those words that we, again, narrowly define and sort of miss the point. Um, Certainly in English, it has very sexual overtones, 
but the word that is used in Greek uh, has something else. It is in the same category as anger, interestingly enough. It seeks to be the master over someone else. It seeks mastery over someone else. Both anger and lust put people down. They enjoy having power over other people, and they see people as things to be used. To look lustfully is to look with the intent to possess or to use. So the person that you are looking at with lust, you no longer see that person as made in the image of God. She or he is simply fuel or a thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's powers. Thus to lust is to desire what is forbidden, to desire to possess, to seek the mastery over others. Now we know that our thoughts of desire and lust can lead to acts which are wrong. Okay, they're unlawful. But Jesus forbids even our thoughts. Um, in James, he wrote, he wrote, "Everyone is each one is tempted when by his own desires he is dragged away and enticed." Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The lust itself is sinful. It must be dealt with. If it is unchecked, it may in fact lead to actions. Thus a solution is required. And what is that solution? Well, for the sixth commandment, and Jesus spoke about it, do not murder, uh, he spoke of, you know, the, the remedy was judgment. You, you know, you call your brother a fool, you will be in danger of judgment. Um, what about the seventh commandment? Well, in the Old Testament, the penalty for breaking the seventh commandment was death. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So, again, Jesus is dealing with something that was considered a capital crime. Um, well, nobody wants to be put to death. No one wants to be executed. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law really narrowed these down so that they could sort of skirt along the very urge, the edge and still not be uh, guilty of breaking the commandment. So Jesus didn't speak of penalty with regard to murder, but of the eternal consequences. Going back to Matthew Five, after he speaks about lusting after someone, what is his solution? This is verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Is Jesus promoting self-mutilation? What's interesting, in application dealing with anger, Jesus spoke about being reconciled. Go and be reconciled with your brother. If you come to the altar and you realize, oh my God, I'm angry at my brother, go and be reconciled and then come back. So there, that is a solution. Here, Jesus deals with discipline. Disciplining. 
I don't think he intended to be taken literally. Rather, it is a call for decisive action, for drastic action against that which could ruin your life. He doesn't advise band-aids. He commands amputation. Gouge out your right eye. It points to the visual aspect of the seventh commandment. Cut off your right hand. It points to acting it out. The issue of sin has to be dealt with in a radical way. We hear this from Jesus in in different portions of the Gospels. Uh, Later in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And we hear this as well in uh, Galatians 5, as Paul writes to the Galatians. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage, but the verse that comes right before it is, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control, gentleness and goodness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Somehow we might imagine that we can have the fruit of the Spirit on our own, uh, but we can't imagine that radical path of gouging out the eye, cutting off your right hand, shutting down the visual and the action part that would violate the seventh commandment. Don't don't fuel your sinful thoughts. Don't look. Those who by the grace of God have learned self-control have learned it both in flesh as well as in the imagination. I would say in most cases, it's not a question of toughing, toughening up. I'm going to really fortify myself against this, but rather staying away. Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lust. It's not, don't stand there and say, I can take this. I can take this. I'm not going to lust. We should be more like Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, ran out of the room. We are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. It's never enough for us to say, stop doing that. Don't do that. We must put something in its place. Do this or pursue this. Later on in in 1 Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the flesh, have pierced themselves with many many griefs. Paul's solution. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. It's not a matter of self-control primarily. It's the grace of God in our lives, and we are. it may in fact involve running away, turning away, closing our eyes, or staying away. You know, that seems rather radical. Oh, would you rather gouge out your eye or cut off your hand? We are called to radical action. So, here at the end, um, we may not get a sense of it when we look at what Jesus says, that it's not quite what the seventh commandment was talking about. Um, But if Jesus is correct, I'm assuming that he is, then we are 
in serious trouble. And if you know Matthew 5, it begins with the Beatitudes, which begin with blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn over sin, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we take Jesus' words seriously and the seventh commandment seriously, then we are going to be always in need of God's grace in our lives. Some might complain and say, yeah, but you know, that was written more than 2,000 years ago. The Ten Commandments, 1,000, 1,500 years before that. Um, They didn't face the problems that we do with technology, photographs, video, the internet. Uh, We are assaulted by images. And uh, surely God did not expect us to live pure lives in, in the face of all that. The images shout at us without words, lust after me, look at me, desire to have me, desire to possess me, desire to master me. And so some would say, it's Damon, it's not my fault. These, these images are assaulting me. By the way, that's what a lot of people would have said about what Jesus said, if a man lusts after a woman, if a woman dress, dresses dresses provocatively, then it's not the man's fault if, in fact, he looks at her and lusts after her. Um, It may be, in fact, that some women may dress in a provocative way. That does not absolve the man of his responsibility with regard to lust. Yes, there are those who, and now with the internet, make it possible for millions and millions of people to see them. They're not innocent in what they do, but we cannot shift the responsibility for our sin to them. We can't choose the time in which we live. God put us here. Okay, That goes back to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. We are here now. We have life now, being now, because God has given it to us now. We don't live 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. We live now. Okay. So it's no use for us to cry or whine about it. That, oh boy, it would have been better in, in olden days, in simpler times. Uh, no. On this Thanksgiving Sunday, we should be thankful. Living when and where we do, there are many blessings that come with it. But there are also many temptations that call us to violate the seventh commandment. One of the blessings of living when we do is that it should drive us more than any other generation with real urgency and a real sense of need of God's grace every moment of every day. Sin is not a matter of the body or the spirit or the soul. It's the whole part of us. It shows us how corrupt we are how weak, how poor we are, and how in desperate need of grace we are. And it tells us how, we, how much we ought to pray for one another. A radical problem demands a radical solution. But let's face it, we live in a society which does not see sex outside of marriage as a problem. So why do we need a solution? 
let alone a radical solution. We need to recognize the society in which we live is not only atheistic, saying there is no God, but it is secular, that is, there is no need for God. And in a culture that has gone from creation to nature, having turned to nature, the culture has in turn then also rejected nature itself. It rejects creation as you know, God created it. Now it's nature. Now they've rejected nature itself. And so people begin to say, well, that's not who I am. I identify it as this, that the body I have actually means nothing. I am who I think that I am. We are told that we can do what we want, except to tell people that there are rules and limits. It's like, no, you, you can't tell me that. The radicalness of Jesus is seen in the reality that he confirms the truth and the authority of the law that God gave us in the Ten Commandments. God, who is holy, who is one, whose name is not to be misused, he is majestic, and he cares about us. He made us. He knows how we are, in fact, supposed to function. He's the creator. We are the creatures. And his solution is to be gracious, to be loving, to live as he intended, and to recognize the sacredness of marriage, the oneness of marriage, and how it is a reflection of his relationship with us. He loves us. He sent his son for us. We are the bride. We are the one whom he has purchased. In preparing the sermon, I think the thought occurred to me more than once, do we really believe the Bible to be the word of God? Because there are parts of the Bible where we're like, yes, I Amen, I get that. That's, that's the good stuff. But then we come across certain things where we're like, yeah, that's, that's just, that's old-fashioned. Um, that's not realistic for the 21st century. But we are sacred ground. God made us. He breathed into us. And in marriage, there is a sacred oneness as there is a sacred oneness as a human being. And God says, no murder. Don't take that gift away. No adultery. Don't break the oneness that is found in marriage. Let's pray together. Our Father, we believe your word to be true. And yet living when and where we do, even though we don't buy into the culture around us, these words seem so foreign, so petty in some ways, and yet demanding. But if by your grace you would give us eyes to see that they show us that on our own we cannot do what is right. We must recognize that we are poor in spirit. We are to mourn over our sins. And your grace is greater than our sins. 
we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness and not buy into what society around us is telling us. I thank you for the wonder of the gifts you have given us. That we are, in fact, sacred ground. And marriage is a sacred union. But you call all you people, married or not, to be holy. To recognize their union with Christ. And to live holy lives. But on our own, we can't do this. There's just no way. But by your grace, we can begin to be obedient. May we pray for each other this coming week, recognizing the temptations, the images that pervade our society. May we ask for grace. I thank you for bringing us together on this Thanksgiving Sunday. Above all, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is proof of your love. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name.